You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you. I say this every week. Church is the best. It's awesome. I love being with you guys. I love uh, what we have an opportunity to do every su- single Sunday. And I don't know about you, but I need church desperately every week. I feel it when I miss it. Um, I miss worshiping with you and praying with you and diving into God's word with you. We're going to talk about baptism today, but before we go there, I just want to give you a brief sort of outline of where we're going to go for a little bit in our sermon series. As you know, we finished the book of Galatians, which was awesome. And here's where we're going to go now. We're going to do a couple of little mini series. So we're going to do a two-part series on ordinances. So today we got baptism. Next week, we've got communion. We're going to have a three-part series on living as the body with some very practical implications for what that means for us as a church. We're going to do a little series on suffering because we all feel the weight of the suffering that we walk through in living in a broken and sinful world. And in there, we're going to mix in a few different guest speakers, and then we're going to start into the book of Exodus. And I'm really excited to go through those series with you, and I'm also excited to get into the book of Exodus. It's a foundational book, both for the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's something that's referred back to constantly, and so it's good for us to go through that and have a good handle on it. It's going to teach us a lot about who God is, and it's going to teach us a lot about the human heart, two things that we need good knowledge on desperately. But let's pray, and then we're going to dive into baptism this morning. Lord God, you are matchless. You are the king of the ages, the king above everything else. And we come this morning to bring honor and praise and glory to your name. We praise you, Lord, as a God of justice, a God who is holy, a God who is eternal, a God who is full of compassion and love. We praise you as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And we thank you for that, Lord. We Thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy. And so we come this morning and we pray, Lord, that would our honor um, and praise um, just rise to you, Lord. And would you help us this morning as we dive into your word? Would you help us to be um, faithful stewards of your word? Would we listen well to your spirit? about the things that we are going to discuss? Would you help impress on us that this isn't something that should just be left to pastors and elders or for those in seminary, but this is absolutely intrinsic in the life of the church. So they pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at baptism, and let's read Romans 6, 3 through 4. We're going to be in a lot of uh, different places, so I hope you got your Bibles out and your Bible flipping fingers ready uh, so that you can make it to the different passages where we're going to see. We'll also have them up on the screen for you, but this is one of our anchor verses, so let's read it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so to start this morning, let's play a little game. We're going to play a little theological game. Um, Ready for some trivia. Do you know what John Owen 
Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, and Ligon Duncan all have in common? Some of you are like, who are those guys? <laughs> maybe you know some of them. Maybe you know all of them. I'll give you three things. Three things. They're all great men of God who hold scripture high. Um, they're all men of God that I have learned so much from many of them. Uh, probably of you, many of you have been blessed by some of their ministry as well, even if you don't know every single one of those people. You'll notice some of their quotes I have put up on the screen in past sermons um, from men like these. So number one, they're great men of God who hold scripture high. Number two, we've been blessed by their ministry. Number three, they all believe in infant baptism. They're all pedo-baptists. And so um, as Baptists... In love, we believe that they're wrong on this topic, even though they're great men of God who hold scripture high. But I want us to remember that they are brothers in Christ. And we have um, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, both in, uh, in the church, people who gather with us. They're not members, but they gather with us. And also people in the universal church who are brothers and sisters in Christ and yet differ on this topic and so I want us to start this conversation just with grace and love and to say, um, as we look at all these things, I want to show you that you can have um, each of those men, they are serious about their Bible. You, so you can have someone who is serious about their Bible, hold the word of God high and come to a different conclusion in scripture. And yet, very practically speaking, as we go through today, the church cannot functionally operate with two different understandings of baptism, and that's why the church must hold to one view and operate that way. So basically, I just want to say, hey, let's come at this with a charitable heart, and we're going to dive into God's Word, and I'm going to endeavor to show you from God's Word why we at Calvary hold to a position of baptism of believers through immersion as our practice, and why we feel God's Word compels us to come to this conclusion. I also want to show you, like I prayed, why this isn't just something for elders and pastors to care about, but it's essential, it's intrinsic in the life of the body. Baptism is something we do together. And so because you play a part in that, because it's something that we do, we almost have a good understanding of what it is because you are the church. I'm not the church. The elders aren't the church. Together, us as believers gathered together, we're the church. Overview. Here's where we're going to go. We're going to go work through just a number of different sections. Some of them will be short. Some of them will be longer. And we're just going to work our way through them so that we can have a great understanding of baptism according to God's word. So let's pull up your bootstraps and here we go. All right. So number one, the purpose of baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 4, the purpose of baptism in very simplistic terms is to demonstrate as a believer that you have union with Christ through the work of God. It's to tell everyone that you are a Christian. So at its simplest form, that's what it is. We're going to get to a more robust definition, but at its simplest form, that's what it is. We want to demonstrate as a believer that we have union with Christ through the work of God to tell everyone that we're a Christian marked as a Christian in the way that Christ commanded. And you can see the unity that I'm talking about right there in that text. So right away, don't you? It says baptized into Christ Jesus, buried with him. We can see that unity 
very clearly. It's also important to note that I said the word demonstrated because does the act of going in the water give you union with Christ? No, no, it doesn't. You already had that union through faith and then you demonstrate that in baptism. Let me show you what I mean. Colossians 2, 6 through 12, we'll just read the highlights. If you look at verse 6 there, it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord. How did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord as Christians? Do you remember? It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. What does it say? You'll remember it. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And then what does it say next? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the water doesn't bring you union with Christ. What brings you union with Christ is faith. Water is not going to save you. Faith does. This verse already tells us what? Who's he talking to as he talks to them about baptism? He's talking to believers, those who have received Christ and call him Lord. He's talking to believers. And then look at verse 11 with me in the pink. What does he say? He says, in him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you think back to our series in Galatians, we talked a lot about circumcision, probably way too much for some of you. Um, And in this, what was circumcision? Circumcision was the old covenant way of showing obedience to God and being marked as part of the family of God. But now according to this verse, what has happened? The Holy Spirit through Paul says, in Christ, you were circumcision, um, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So you were marked as part of the family of God. You were made a Christian, not through the old covenant way of circumcision, but instead it happened through who? Jesus. It happened through his work, through his shedding of his blood and rising from the dead to make way for a sinful people to have union with a holy God. That's what he tells us. And then look at the connection to verse 12. So in verse 6, we know that Paul is talking to Christians. In verse 11, he's reminding them of how they became Christians, became part of God's family through God's work. And then in verse 12, he's going to remind them of how they show that they are part of the family of God under the new covenant. If you're like, what's the new covenant? That's, uh, just write these down. You could look at them later. Places like Jeremiah 31, Luke 22. And there's tons of different references in Hebrews that will give you a good place to start as he talks about this new covenant. So that's how we show ourselves as part of the family of God under the new covenant. Look at verse 12 with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So does baptism save? Does the water save? Does the water bring union with Christ? No. The saving is through the powerful working of God. So when someone's baptized, what they're doing is they're showing the work of God in their life of in him taking us from being dead in our sins and being made alive with Christ. 
The purpose of baptism is to demonstrate as a believer that you have union with Christ through the work of God. And this is in obedience to God. And so this connects to the symbolism of baptism. And Alyssa alluded to that um, before. As Baptists, we believe that God instituted baptism as a symbol to show the world and to show the church what God has already done in your life, in the life of a believer. Let me give you an example. At a wedding, picture yourself at a wedding. Many of you have been to a wedding recently. When you've been at a wedding, when the husband and the wife are exchanging the rings, when they say, with this ring, I thee wed, or whatever they've chosen to say, does it mean in that moment they're married? Is the marriage built on the ring ceremony? No, it's not. What's the marriage built on? The marriage is built on the vows. The marriage is built on the covenant that they made to one another. And then why do we have the ring ceremony after? The ring symbolizes that covenant, something that's already taken place that they now demonstrate. So putting on the, it's like, baptism is like putting on the ring for the first time. It's to show people what's already happened, what God has done in your life, to mark yourself as a Christian in that covenant. And then the taking of the Lord's Supper, communion, which Dustin is going to talk about next week, is like wearing the rings forever. It's the continual act of identifying as a believer in the local church with the body of Christ. That's what it symbolizes. So we come to the ordinance of baptism. So we know the purpose to demonstrate union in Christ, and we can see the symbolism, right? Very tied very clearly to Romans 6, 3 through 4, that we know that we've been given new life through Jesus' death and resurrection. But why do we do it? Why do we do it this way? And what in the world does the word ordinance mean? Let's start there. The word ordinance means, it simply means he ordained it. That's what it means. It means he ordained it. Who ordained it? Jesus. Jesus ordained it. He explicitly commanded the church to practice baptism. And there's two ordinances. There's two things that we see that Jesus specifically commanded the church to do. Baptism and communion. So where does he ordain baptism? In Matthew 28. And so why do we do this ordinance? Because we want to be obedient to Jesus. In Matthew 28, he says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the command that Jesus gives us before he ascends up to heaven. So what do we see? We see to go. There's an action item. We're to go to make disciples. Who are disciples? Christians. Once they are Christians, how will they show that they're Christians? By being baptized. That feels like a pretty solid, straightforward interpretation. We haven't done anything funny with the text. Uh, but if you were in the hermeneutics class last year, you'll remember that one of the keys to good interpretation is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so in this case, we can actually understand how the churches, how the early Christians interpreted what Jesus says before he ascended up to heaven. So let's look at a few examples of those. Let's see the practice of baptism in the New Testament. First, let's look at Acts 2, 37 to 41. I'm going to read it because we're going to come back to this verse 
um, a few times. It says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what's the pattern of the early church at Jerusalem? This is in Acts 2, just after Jesus has ascended. What's the pattern of the Christian believers? What are they doing? How do they interpret what Jesus said? It's to baptize Christians. It was to repent so that we have believers, and then they were baptized So we see that in Acts, and we see Peter sort of leading that charge as a disciple. He would have heard what Jesus said. But what about Paul? Someone who, as far as we know, wasn't with Jesus to hear that command firsthand. What does he think about it? And even more importantly, what about the church in Rome, which geographically is very far away from Jerusalem? What what are they practicing? What are they doing? How did they interpret what Jesus said? Look at Romans 6, 3 through 4. And do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that word have tell us? It tells us that Paul already knew as he writes to the Roman church that they were practicing baptism in this way, in the way that Jesus had outlined that They were baptizing people after they had come to faith in Christ to mark themselves as part of the family of God, as part of the church. So there's two examples there that I can show you. Now we come to the who, the who in baptism. So there's lots of things that we would agree with our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is one of the areas that we differ. We differ with them on this. And to all the Baptists out here, I want to remind you of this, that the who of baptism is actually more important than the mode. For all the different things, we're going to talk about mode, and the mode is important, but for all the things that we've talked about, all the Baptist discussion around baptism, the who of baptism is more important than the mode, okay? Why? Because what's really at stake? We're saying, do we baptize infants, or do we baptize believers? That's the question before the church, and so our, um, as we read Scripture, our reading of Scripture compels us to believe that we only baptize um, believers, that only the baptism of believers is the true obedient baptism. And so that's why the who is more important than the mode. What really makes us Baptists is that we baptize believers as opposed to infants. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And why do we get that? And this is where I want to hopefully show you where scripture compels us. We just read Acts 2, 37 through 41. Let's work our way through it. If you look at verse 37, it says this. Now they, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You're like, why are they cut to the heart? If you look and if you got your Bible open, I encourage you, stop listening to me for a minute and go back. Um, you'll get more out of God's word than me. Um, go back in God's word just before this text. And you're, what you're going to see is that Peter is preaching the gospel. 
He preaches the gospel, and that's why they are cut to the heart. So the cut to the heart in connection with the preaching of the gospel. And so what I want to show you is that baptism in the New Testament is always connected to the preaching of the gospel. So they, they heard the gospel, and then Peter gives them a command to repent and be baptized. And there's a specific order that he's given them, doesn't he? What's the order that he gave them? It's to repent and then to be baptized. And this is the pattern that I want to show you in the New Testament, that we are saved and then we are baptized. And this is why we feel compelled as Baptists to baptize only those who are believers because of this pattern that's laid out in Scripture. We saw that same pattern in Matthew 28, and I'm going to show you a few more examples. If you go down then to verse 41, it says this, so those who received his word were baptized. So what was the word? So they received the preaching of the gospel. They heard the gospel, the word, the action from hearing the gospel was to repent. And then the action after the repentance was what? Baptism. That's the pattern of the church in the New Testament. What about in Colossians 2, 6 through 12? We read this one. What do we say in verse 6? As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. What's the pattern? It's believe and be baptized. What about this one? We're going to come back to this one because it, it's got some um, people want to talk about this one a lot. And that's, it's a good conversation. But what's the pattern? Even here in this text, the gospel there in the yellow to believe you can see that in the green there, um, the eunuch said, yeah, I'm going to believe this. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? And then what happens? Then he was baptized. It's gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart to then believe and then to be baptized. What about Acts 10? In Acts 10, um, we're not going to read all this for sake of time, but I want to show you Peter is again preaching the gospel. Look very clearly at the yellow. You can look specifically at the pink. Peter is preaching the gospel. This is Acts 10, 34 to 43. And then if you come after this, look what happened in connection with the preaching of the gospel. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see the pattern again? What do we see? We see the gospel was preached. The Holy Spirit does work in those people's lives. They're saved by whose work? Holy Spirit's work. Then they want to be obedient and be baptized to declare the work that God has done in their life. This is why we are compelled as Baptists to only baptize those who believe, because we see this pattern in the New Testament, and we believe that the order is essential. All right, now let's talk about mode a little bit, the mode of baptism. And then we're going to get to why um, you all should care about these things. The mode of baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, this is one of the texts where it shows Jesus' baptism. 
And so the first thing I want you to see from Matthew chapter 3 is it says, immediately he went up from the water. What did Jesus model at his baptism? He modeled being immersed in the water. And so that's point number one, why we would practice immersion is because Jesus modeled it. Number two, it was practiced by the New Testament church. And we've seen that in the number of the texts that we've talked about in Acts 8 and in Acts 10. What did they do? They were immersed in the water. That's how they formed baptism. And number three, um, the, Greek, uh, the Greek word for baptize means to dip or to immerse. That is its um, interpretation. And those are three reasons that compel us to believe that immersion is the most faithful biblical mode to choose for baptism. Here's the fourth. You remember Romans 6, 3 through 4, we said it was going to be our anchor. If you remember our, symbol, our symbolism, what's the symbolism? It's that we were, it reminds us that we were dead, we were buried in our sins, and that we were raised to life in Christ by the work of God. So what's that? It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what God has done in our lives. And so as we see those things and we understand what baptism is to show people, we would say the most clear way to show that, the, the most faithful way to stay to that symbolism is to practice the immersing of believers in the waters of baptism. All right, here's the church, the church in baptism. This is where the rubber meets the road for many of us. Bobby Jameson says this. He says, baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. In a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people. Therefore, uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So I told you we were going to get to our more robust definition of baptism. Here it is. A lot of the time when we think of baptism, we remember the one um, whose act is professing faith. That's really good. We should do that. that. That's a good thing to do. But we also need to remember that there are two parties involved in baptism, both that person and the church. And this is what I want to show you. In the book of Matthew, Jesus lays a theological foundation for this understanding. In Matthew 16, 18 through 19, he says this, and I tell you, this is Jesus talking to Peter, and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then in Matthew 18, 18 through 20, he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, what's that? It's the church. In my name, there am I among them. What does Jesus lay out in these two passages? He gives to Peter and then to extension all believers to make determinations in the name of God based on his word. What's bound in earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. It's God giving authority to the church, 
Remember, I'm not the church. Who's the church? Gathered believers. You're the church. Giving authority to the church, to the gathered believers, to be his mouthpiece and to declare things in his name. And so how does that connect with the church in baptism? It connects with Matthew 28. A few chapters later in Matthew, when Jesus commands the church to baptize those who through the preaching of the gospel and the work of God are made disciples. So what's Jesus charging the church? He's charging the church. He's putting it in their hands. He's saying, I've given you the keys to make a proclamation on his behalf, according to his word, to proclaim that someone has been saved. That as they go out and as they preach the gospel in the work of God makes disciples, who is then to determine who's to baptize them? The church. The church is then to baptize believers, recognizing the work of God. And how do we recognize the work of God? We do it by understanding according to God's word. Does that make sense? You see that? So then in Acts 2, you remember this text, we've been here a couple of times, look at verse 41 with me. And it says, there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. They were added to what? You ever thought about that? They were added to what? They were added to the church, those who were saved. And then they were baptized together. They were added to the church. And yes, it's true that they were added to the universal church, but more specifically, who were these souls added to? They were added to the church at Jerusalem. That's who they were connected with. As they heard the preaching of the gospel, God worked in their life. And then they were baptized, demonstrating that they became a part of the believers in Jerusalem. And so baptism is a two-way act. Number one, you can't baptize yourself. When Gary jumped in the water in Mexico, Gary wasn't baptized. Why? Because it's not a, it's not a one person thing. Every time you jump in the water, every time you have a shower, you're not being baptized. It's a two-way act and you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something that happens one time. But more importantly, this is what I want you to see. It's it's two things. It's someone affirming, proclaiming the work that God has done in their life. And then it's the local church affirming their belief of the work of God that they can see that this has taken place in someone's life. So it's the person proclaiming themselves as a Christian. And then it's also the church proclaiming that by every reasonable biblical metric that we've been given, that we can see that this person has been changed by God, that they are a Christian. And so then they're baptized. We're proclaiming, hey, yes, this person's a Christian. And then so they're, they're, they're added to the church. And as they're added to the church, then we encourage one another and hold each other accountable in our walks with God, according to everything that he calls the church to do in all those one another's that you find in the New Testament. And this is why it's important that um, by every sort of general wise practice that baptism is connected with the local church. So something that you're going to see us as elders working on is to more closely connect baptism and membership in the local church. Because if we're recognizing you as a believer, but then saying you're not really a member yet, it, it's, it's not fully um, giving the picture that we see the Bible giving here. So we need to remember that this is something that when we baptize someone, 
It's us, the committed members of the church, recognizing and celebrating the work of God in a person's life and saying welcome to the family. And that's an amazing thing. Who loves baptisms? I love baptisms. They are phenomenal. And that's why, because we're welcoming someone in to the family. Let's talk about a few outliers in baptism just really quickly, okay? So there's a few different texts that get um, brought up in relation to baptism and in connection with the local church. Uh, One of them is the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in Acts chapter 8. The Philippian jailer is another example. And if we had a whole bunch of time, we could talk about more of these things. But here's what I want you to know. Our understanding of these texts is that they're not normative, but they're outliers. But they also give great amounts of grace when we consider talking about baptism, which you'll see is essential in our next section. But they're not the general pattern that we're going to encourage at Calvary. Because a lot of time, take the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, just really quickly. The Ethiopian eunuch people will say, well, that's a reason why like, I didn't just get baptized in my backyard pool and not in front of anybody else. And we're going to say that's, this, is not a, this is not a normative text, it's an outlier text. I think Acts 8 is actually a perfect example of what we can consider on the mission field. Because who got baptized? An Ethiopian eunuch. Where was the Ethiopian going back to? Was he going back to a, a church to be connected to a body? No, he wasn't. And so what makes the most sense in that situation? To baptize him right there. Because he's not going to go back into a body of, a local body of believers. And that would make sense on the mission field, would it not? If you're out in the jungle, there's no church, someone comes to faith in the Lord. Can you just baptize them in connection with the local church? No. So what makes the most sense? If they want to be baptized, you would baptize them in that. But it's not a normative pattern. It's an outlier. It gives grace. And you'll see that come as the rubber hits the road as we wrestle with a few of these hard questions about baptism. And I want to start here by just saying that I cannot speak on behalf of the elders for all these things because we haven't talked through and wrestled through every single one of these. So what I'm going to tell you here is sort of like if I was sitting at the table and someone comes to us, this is what we would be discussing as elders. But ultimately, we got to make decisions as elders. And if they disagreed with me about these things, then we would take the path that they see and not the path that I see. But let's just look at a few because these are some of the things that come up in connection with baptism. Number one, so should I get baptized at summer camp? Like everyone's doing it. They got really sweet t-shirts. What should I do? What should I do? According to our definition of baptism, this is something that I would say we would not encourage. Why? Because our understanding of baptism, the normative pattern of baptism, is that it's a two-way act with both the person and the church acting together. It should be in connection wherever possible with the local church and adding that person to the church. That being said, for because of passages like the Ethiopian eunuch, I would say our pattern, I would hazard a guess that our pattern as elders would be to give grace. So if you're there shaking your boots thinking, I got baptized at summer camp, do the elders think that it's not real? I would say no. We would accept that as a genuine form of baptism as long as everything else lines up. But we would just probably make a note that it's not normative. It's not the pattern that we are going to encourage in the church. What about this one? 
Should my uncle, who's a pastor in BC, baptize me when I visit him next summer? So Uncle Jim Bob Joe Frank Schmitz out there in BC, he um, has been praying for you since you weren't even born yet, and he was praying hard for you, and you love um, Pastor Jim Bob and Joe Schmitz dearly. And so you're like, really, I want to get baptized, but I want him to baptize me because that would be super special. Should I just wait until next summer when I go visit him out in BC? So we would say similar to number one, our answer, our counsel is going to be no. That's not what we would recommend. Why? Because it, fully, it doesn't fully align with the way that God has set up baptism and what its purpose is to be. But again, if this is your story, um, we're going to have grace for you in that if you are baptized as a believer in connection with the preaching of the gospel. Number three, can my dad baptize me? Pastor Mark, I really, really want my dad to baptize me. He's the best person in the whole wide world. And like, yes, amen, your dad is the best person in the whole wide world. But this is something where, again, we're going to say this is not something that we would um, practice as a church. Why? Because it's not a family ordinance. It's not a a family thing that's happening here. What is it happening? It's an act between the believer, the church, and God. And again, with the same grace, if this is your story, we would accept it with everything else. But we're going to say that's not the normal with wisdom and prudence. It's not the normal thing that we would see as wise or our practice. How about number four? Should I get baptized just so I can become a church member? Should I get baptized just so I can become a church member? I really don't believe it, but there's no other good churches around, so I kind of want to be a member, so can I just get baptized? This is something that, again, we would say, caution you to say no. We believe that this is something that needs to be done with belief and conviction. Because remember, what's at the root of baptism? It's ultimately you have to believe that you are showing obedience to God. And so you need to believe it's obedience and want to do it, not do it just to become a member. And one more, does baptism save you? No. Baptism doesn't save you. This is one that I can guarantee you all of us elders are on agreement with. We know that baptism doesn't save us. If you remember those verses at the start, you're saved by grace through faith. And then baptism is an act of obedience, showing yourself as marked off from the world and instead being marked as part of the family of God and living that out in the local church. That's what we see as baptism. And so as we close, I just want you to remember this. I want you to put this in front of your face as we've gone through lots of different technical things regarding baptism. There's an absolute beauty to baptism. And the beauty of baptism is that every single time it puts on full display the power of the gospel. It proclaims that we were dead in our sin, that we had no life apart from the work of God, and that we're raised to life with Christ through his work. We're showing God to be awesome because we were dead and there's nothing that we could do about it, and it's through his work. And we want to proclaim that to everyone, both to the world and to the church, to say, God did this in my life. And now we have this real life with Christ and we're proclaiming that to say, I've got real life in Christ. That through the work of God, I've got real life. It starts now. It's going to be unhindered in heaven. It's going to last for all of eternity. Baptism puts on display walking in the newness of life in Christ. And then that's something that we get to do together. 
The act of baptism in being baptized into the local church reminds us that we're not alone. Amen for that, huh? Isn't it good we're not alone? You want to do life on your own? It doesn't work very well, does it? Some of us have tried it. It doesn't go very well. We weren't called to walk in this life alone. We're not supposed to do this alone. We weren't designed to do life alone. So we're baptized into the local body of believers, and that's God's great gift to us, that as we seek to bring him glory together and we walk in obedience with him, we can walk in obedience in joy. Even though we walk through a painful and sinful world, we still can experience that true authentic life, both now and for all of eternity. That's what baptism puts on display. And at its core, it points us to the greatness and the majesty of God. Because without him, there would be no life in us. And if you don't yet have this life that we're talking about here, that you can have hope in spite of pain, that you can have joy, that you, can, you're, you no longer feel the weight of your sin because you are saved by Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to talk to a Christian that you know. Or come up to the front after and talk to one of us as elders. We would love to answer your questions. And we would love um, for you uh, to follow God with your whole heart. And then be baptized to demonstrate that that change has taken place. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, you are so, so good. And we just want to come and say thank you for the absolutely beautiful gift of baptism. Lord, watching people be baptized as they proclaim, Lord, that they were dead in their sins and made alive in Christ is one of my favorite things in the whole wide world to witness. And so we thank you for the joy that you have given us in the church and being able to do this together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that I have been charitable in this discussion, but also... um, shown with conviction um, in God's word why we passionately pursue trying to do church the way that you have laid out for us in God's word. And so I pray um, that those things have come across well. I pray that people would forget um, or talk to me um, if things have not. And so I pray that you would be with us now as we prepare our hearts for communion in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.